Hey, on this episode of Talking Catholic, I spoke here with Michael Lofton. We spoke a little bit about his faith journey. We spoke about his apostolate reason and theology. We talked about um, a really good conversation about how does it, what does it mean to man to have experienced a tragedy of abortion, to be a post-abortive male. And we spoke about the, the cost of the sin of abortion globally, in particular, how it disproportionately affects black Americans. And we talked about fatherhood. So this is a really great conversation. I hope you tune in. Make sure you guys hit that bell here if you're watching on YouTube so you can be notified of upcoming shows. And I will begin right after the eight second introduction. I'll see you on the other side. Michael Lofton, man, welcome on to Talking Catholic. How you doing? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me on, by the way. Yeah, I'm glad we finally got together. I know we talked about this in the past, maybe doing something together. So I'm glad I was able to get you on the show. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah. And so I know some of my audience already knows you, but mm -hmm. one way that a lot of them may have encountered you, um, I guess maybe two ways. I, when I was when I was getting ready for the show, so I was I was stalking you on the Google, right? Yeah. And I noticed back in 2015, you were like pr a prolific writer. I mean, you were right. writing at, um, I think, 1 Peter 5, at, yes. at Church Militant. Yes. I mean, just article after article. Yes. I think that same year, um, was that year you, you got your master's degree or something too? or something I, had, I had just started uh, the master's you at that time. You had just started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was going on yeah, now? What's going on? You know, I, <laughs> I was seeing all kinds of things taking place in the church, and it was really pressing on me, and I needed to address it in the best way that I could. And that was through writing articles at the time. So I was writing for uh, Church Militant, The Remnant, uh, Catholic Family News, One Peter Five, and a few others, um, some various newspapers and, uh, you know, online websites. Um, just because, I mean, there was just so much going on, it really still is, um, with the pontificate of Pope Francis. So I just felt like that was the best way to address what was going on. But yeah, I had to really put the writing on hold when I started the degree because there was just, yeah. it, it was too much. It was too time consuming holding down a full-time job and the writing and the degree. So yeah. I said, okay, no. <laughs> but you so had I, also, I, you had also, I, went, I noticed on Amazon, you had read a number of books that mm -hmm. year too you have written man i mean i had never seen anybody if you if you die you're certainly gonna die <laughs> and there's a, a cause of sainthood for you i mean you wrote so much in 2015 <laughs> that they may make you a doctor of the church i mean you have i've never seen that before my but my, most of my writing honestly I, I i think it was all just garbage i mean as far as what i was trying to express i believe was was still substantial but perhaps the way that i communicated it uh could have been fine-tuned a little bit so yeah, yeah, yeah. i yeah well it, it, it is what it is but yeah i was writing a lot um there was a bible commentary that i was working on uh -huh. uh, was doing some of my own commentaries on scripture, uh, but also addressing just different topics that were going on in the church with the, you know, the post-conciliar crisis, for example, or maybe a commentary on the divine liturgy of St. James or just whatever was, you know, intriguing me at the time I would, I would write about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and usually I, I just I go ahead and publish it. 
<laughs> I don't know if this is the the case for you, but I noticed when um, once I had graduated and got my master of arts degree, and you know how rigorous it is, how much you read when you when you get an advanced degree in theology, and how much you have to write, and how your writing has to be really good for the program. That when I I, I look back. And I saw some of what I had written before I got my master's, some of the books I read. I just took them offline. Some of the articles, Same. essays I read, I took them offline. I said, man, this just isn't very yeah. good. It's not as good as I can do now. Was that exactly. Your- That's yeah. exactly how I feel. I know I could write better. I could be more articulate. The grammar could be better and so on. So um <laughs> That's kind of how I felt. Like th- this is embarrassing. It's kind of looking. It's like when you look at an old high school photo of yourself, and you know that you look, uh, you know, a lot different now. That's what it's like. It's just kind of embarrassing. But hey, if somebody benefited from it or still benefits from right. it, great. But yeah, for right. most of those, I took down. I might revise at a later time. Yeah, I, I did write a book recently on the issue of limbo and the fate of unbaptized right. infants. Uh, but other than that, I haven't been doing a whole lot of writing uh, just because working. On degrees, so. yeah, 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 and you now you're pursuing your um, a PhD degree, right? Yeah, it's a PhD with Pontifex University. So I'm going to be uh, writing a dissertation. I'm I'm already um, on the uh, dissertation right now. I've already began the process, and it's going to be on the magisterium and uh, mm-hmm. different indicators of definitive language, non-definitive language, and the level of assent owed to different magisterial propositions. I think that's something that really needs to be fleshed out so that we can know, okay, when it comes to this doctrine, what is its magisterial status? Is it definitive? Is it not? How do we know objectively? Those are the the kind of things that we need to work through. So uh, take the example... Yeah, yeah. So that that's what I'm going to be doing. Uh, so much much more to come when it comes to the magisterium. Yeah, man. So so you got your master's um, of arts degree in theology, right? Um, right. Yeah. And then you went. Is it uh, a lot of people may have run into you uh, your your um, YouTube channel, Reason and Theology? You have a website associated yeah. with that too. That's Reason. And theology. Um, for those who don't know, I put a link in the description box for those of you watching on um, YouTube or you listening to the podcast version. Just drop down to the description box. You'll, you'll see a link t- to those. Um, so, yeah, what's going on with that? Talk a little bit about what we're doing at Apostolate. You, you know, what, what was going on is... Um, I, I, I imagine you're familiar with Eric Ibarra. He and I have been friends for years, uh, probably a good six years, somewhere around there. Um, <clears throat> and we would talk daily about the, the crisis in the church, what all is going on, balancing ideas back and forth. And, uh, you know, we started doing text messages, phone calls, and even videos. And after a while, I just said, you know what, maybe we should record some of this uh-huh. and these conversations so that other people can kind of benefit um from the material that we're, we're sharing with each other and, and the ideas that we're ba- bouncing back and forth. So we started out doing videos together, posting them on YouTube, just talking about different topics. Then it developed into, you know, we'll also do interviews and debates and roundtable discussions. So that's kind of how it blossomed was just from these, uh, you know, video conversations that we'd have over uh, Skype or whatever. <clears throat> yeah, so over on, on, on the YouTube side of it, if you go on there, man, you guys will see... Um, roundtable debates sometimes there'll be maybe two three four catholics and maybe a guest or sometimes there may be different people who aren't catholics and i mean it's just it's a really i think it really i don't think i've seen anything else like this where it's just a good discussion format 
about the orthodoxy of the faith. And the guys who are on the program are all orthodox. Uh, I mean, they all um, believe the orthodoxy of the faith. So, um, see, I, man, I, I, I think it's really, really neat. And I see it's growing as well. I appreciate that. You know, what we're, what we're definitely trying to do is have some of these conversations that uh, need to be had, but are generally done in a very hostile way that are not done charitably. So we try to have dialogue. I, I can't stand that term, but uh, using it in its proper sense, we try to have, you know, genuine charitable dialogue with people that we actually disagree with, uh, but in a healthy way so that other people can benefit because I honestly believe if you just put the different views out there, the truth is going to shine. The truth is going to be made manifest. So if you have a Catholic, you have an Orthodox, you have a Protestant discussing an issue, the truth is going to come out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, um, what, 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 so far, what has been your, how, how long have you, how long has this been online on the, on, on the, on the issue? Yeah, I started January 8th, I believe, of 2019. So yeah, about a yeah. year and a half now. Mm -hmm. What's your so. favorite show so far? What, what show? Would, yeah, it's kind of what hard. What show would you watch again and again and again? You know, probably the discussion with Dr. Jared Goff and Dr. David Bradshaw, just because this is something that has pretty much never been done, to my knowledge. Uh, because here you have a Scotist from the Catholic tradition and a Palamist from the Eastern Orthodox perspective discussing some really, really um, complex issues when it comes to theology and philosophy to my knowledge that's really never been done on video uh so yeah that that would probably be my most uh you know in, intriguing uh show in, in my opinion but others might right. disagree so if you're watching <laughs> on, on youtube click that little um, exclamation mark up there and I'll, I'll i'll drop that link in there so you guys can hop over and see that do, do you do you like to call yourself in a an apologist or are you a theologian um, you know, probably the latter more than the former, but um, either would would be fine. I, I don't know if I would qualify as, for, you know, either a theologian or an apologist per se. Uh, maybe aspiring theologian <laughs> and aspiring <laughs> apologist would be more suitable. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you're armchair you're, you're, theologian. <laughs> yeah. But you're you're a convert to the to the faith. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I am. And so, for those who don't know, I'm not going to go deep into the conversion story here because I think he recorded a really. Uh, I know you can find a written version elsewhere online, but here um, I, was, I was watching the journey home with Marcus Grodi, and so I'm going to put a link to that in the description box for you guys. So um, uh, click on that after the show if you want to hear more about Michael's um, Lofton's conversion story. But I want to just jump in. Right at the point, because you and I, we share a number of things in common. I'm finding out more about as we, as um, I get to know you that yeah, um, both of this share of share this that we both were in a period of of darkness in our life yeah, um, yeah. where we thought about ending it all yeah, and it was that moment that precipice that was a moment of conversion for you right oh Talk yeah a bit absolutely. 
Yeah, that that was a a, a big uh, part, um, big part of my life. Uh, it was I was twenty two years old, living in New York City. Um, went through all kinds of stuff in twenty two years, but uh, the person that I was with at that time had an abortion against my will. I wanted to have the child. She decided to have an abortion. This was my first child, also. So um, it hit me really hard. So kind of coming on the heels of a lot of things that I had already been through with that blow, it just was devastating to me. And I honestly just didn't want to move forward anymore. And I, I, I remember just kind of praying at that time. And uh, I wasn't living, you know, a Christian life. I wasn't practicing the faith or anything. I wasn't very serious about it. Um, but, you know, I remember praying to God and just basically saying, you know, I'm 22 years old. I'm not going to do another 22 years of this. So you either need to intervene or I'm done. I don't want to move forward. And it, it was right at that time that there was definitely an intervention. Uh, and I, I had met some guys who had a street ministry. And um, one of the guys, he was, um, I don't know, something like he had just got out of a prison for like 20 years, uh, some kind of murder bid that he did. And he converted in, in prison. So he became a Christian and he was really, really big into sharing Christianity with others and giving them Bibles. Well, anyways, met him. He gave me a Bible, but it was a really, really nice hardback $40, you know, study Bible. And he told me to keep it. And I just thought, wow, I mean, this guy really actually cares about me if he's willing to give me something so expensive. So I said, you know what? I'm at the end of my rope. Let me just read this thing. And, and every single day, for hours, I would read it, and I was not an avid reader, um, but I would read for six, seven hours, you know, as, as much as I could until my eyes became so blurry I couldn't read anymore. Um, I would read every day until I finished it, and it was about a month, maybe 20 where'd days, you, 30 days, somewhere where, around there. Where did you start at? Did you start at Genesis? Genesis 1. Genesis 1. And I read to the end of Revelation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to literally just, I mean, I have nothing else left to do. I really, I'm at the end of my rope. I don't have a life. Let me just read this thing. So <laughs> I read it, uh, you know, I'd go to work and read, you know, and you know, between my breaks and everything on the bus home, I would read. And yeah, I made my way through the Bible in, in uh, just a little under a month. And I can tell you, I mean, there wasn't just one particular moment, but it was in that time. Um, that my life really just changed. I remember when I was done reading, I just thought, wow, I've never read anything like this. It profoundly changed me. I wanted to follow God. I wanted to take him seriously. I wanted to obey his commands. Um, I wanted to tell others about God and about this experience that I had. So it was very, very much an experiential conversion. Um, so that, that, that's kind of what got me into uh, taking the faith seriously was that whole situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, yeah man, I, I that's another thing I didn't know you and I had in common because I also had a similar experience with abortion. Yeah. And um, it didn't it didn't turn me to God or anything. But it, at the moment, I was probably the angriest, angriest I had ever been in my entire life. Yeah. Because yeah. um, I felt some my um, I felt she um, had taken on this is the woman I eventually married outside mm. outside the church when I was young. But yeah, um, I felt that she had taken something from me that she didn't have the right to take. Agreed. And and I remember, yeah, being very angry, angry enough that I, I came close to um, taking her life. So, 
Um, oh no, hey, I I understand. Been there, and 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 that's one thing that we really don't hear a whole lot about, and and that is the father's side of this when it comes to abortion, and perhaps the father's rights. I remember calling around different activist groups and attorneys and everything that I could, governmental uh, departments, trying to contact them. Is there anything I can do to stop her from doing this? Nobody would help me. That enraged oh, me. You, oh, you knew because, ahead of time what she was going to do. You knew what she was going to do. I knew. I knew. Oh. She told me she was going to do this about a month in advance. She had originally said she was going to keep the child, but then her, her parents con, um, convinced her otherwise. So I was just trying to find out, is there any rights that I have as a father? Absolutely not. Father has no rights. He doesn't get to keep his child. His child gets to get murdered, and he has absolutely no say in the matter. I, and I saw that as a great, great injustice. And, and it hit me really, really hard because this is, is, first of all, I'm against it, period. But this is my first child. I wanted to see this child. I wanted to build a life with, with this child. And I have nothing but an, an ultrasound picture. That's all I have. I don't even know the gender. So, yeah, that, that hit me really hard. And so, like I said, that's kind of when I, I reached the end of my ropes. But um, God really turned it around. At that time, yeah, I know we're going to come back to the um, to the abortion genocide issue um, later on in the show, but I, I just like to encourage any man out there listening, um, you know, because they had they had you know they had this thing I think it was last year um, some 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 woman was going around I guess an organization of people telling women to shout your abortion story, but I yeah. like to encourage I like to encourage men to share your story about because a lot of men are. People just don't know. A lot of men are in pain about about yeah. this. About I was too. They, they don't know how to process this. And, yeah. and it hurts and they have no rights. And it affects men for all their life. Yeah. Because um, you're still a dad to that child. Um, yeah. That, that was never born. So uh, I definitely encourage yeah. men to tell your story as well, to share this. More people need to know how this affects men. And I couldn't do that for years. I mean, this happened in 2006. I couldn't do this up until maybe just a couple years ago. That was the first time I think I really talked about it publicly. Yeah. Um, I was just not able to talk about it in any way, whether it's an article or just I could talk to a couple people about it privately. But that was it. I was not able to talk to anybody um, publicly about it. It was just it was too, too bad. Yeah. Um, so I get it. I understand why some fathers, you know, find that very, very difficult to talk about. Yeah. And so you're... Um Man, so you yeah, we yeah, I have that stuck. See, when I had that experience, like a version experience, um, yeah. I didn't I didn't yeah. go to Genesis. I just went to the New Testament because I, yeah. I thought that I kind of knew the Old Testament. That's really interesting. Yeah. You started Genesis, that's, <laughs> and I made it through Leviticus too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's well, that sounds like that's well for me. That's good stuff because that's liturgy. That's liturgy. Yeah, so yeah. that's yeah, 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 that's, yeah. That's I love that. But uh, but, I yeah. love Leviticus. Of its allegorical content, but at the time I didn't like it and <laughs> I didn't yeah. appreciate it, but I pushed through. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. And um, so jump to the point where you like, when do you realize you have to become a Catholic? What was that? What was that moment? Like, I said, like, okay, I, I don't have any worlds to go. You have the words of eternal life. 
Sure, sure. Yeah. So in 2006 is when I began to take Christianity serious, uh, seriously, although I had been baptized at 12 when I just came back from Israel the second time. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I was mostly in, you know, non-denominational and Protestant communions. But it was around um, Advent of 2011 that I really uh, took Catholicism seriously. And, and in fact, it was the first week of Advent in 2011 that I attended the first uh, my first mass. But, um, you know, essentially, what was going on is you know previously i'd already had my my uh daughter and i had to ask the question do am i going to have her baptized or not so that got me looking into infant baptism so that moved me from baptist to reformed to protestant to presbyterian um and i um in that communion, they put more emphasis on church history in in the reformed communion presbyterians so i started looking into <clears throat> church history the more i looked into it the more i thought okay I, there, there's no way I can remain Protestant. So I had to start looking into other options. Uh, looked into Anglo-Catholicism, which some might still consider Protestantism. Um, I looked into Orthodoxy and also Roman Catholicism. And eventually, at the end of the day, Roman Catholicism went out for me, uh, mostly just because of the papacy, issues involving the papacy. Uh, that was kind of the deciding factor for me because I thought, wow, I mean, it, I, I really like the Orthodox Church in, in many ways. And in, in some ways, it's a lot easier to transition from Protestantism to Orthodoxy than to Catholicism, just because there's so many stereotypes that you have to break through with Catholicism and so many doctrines that you have to work through, especially coming from the Reformed perspective, because they're always harping against the Catholic Church. So there's more work to do. But at the end of the day, I have to ask the question, okay, where is the truth? And uh -huh. between them, I, I decided Catholicism mostly because of the matter of the papacy. So when I became convinced of the papacy, I realized, okay, I can no longer um, remain outside of this communion because if this is true, um, if Christ really did divinely establish the papacy, if this is where the fullness of the church is, and I know that, then there's no salvation outside of it, then I, I have to convert. So that was kind of the moment for me, 2011, uh, late 2011. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, okay, okay. And so it's like a, um, you got really deep in history, I see. But yeah. as a, as someone in the Reformed tradition, I, I noticed this from some, you know, a good friend of mine in that tradition. He's, he's, he's a Calvinist, you know. I think he had Tulip tattooed on his back or something. But, <laughs> uh, but and I had a couple of good friends that, that was in that tradition. And um, and I noticed that when it, when, it, when it comes to church history, they're very much, you know, they, it, it, it's St. Paul and this St. Augustine, as they call him, right? Yeah. St. Yeah. Augustine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but they don't connect St. Augustine with the Catholic Church, really. Right. Were, were, you, were you that same way? Were you familiar yeah. with, with Augustine? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. For a while I was there. But I continued to read Augustine. I also continued to read other church fathers, the anti-Nicene fathers, apostolic fathers, and just saw a major, um, you know, just saw a lot of discontinuity. But yeah, Augustine was, was a big deal for me because I would read uh, his anti-Pelagian works or mm -hmm. some of his uh, anti-Donatist works. But especially I was, I was mostly concerned about the anti-Pelagian because it, it had to do with the issue of predestination that Calvinists yeah, yeah. were really big in. And so, yeah. um, but I, I would look through this and just think, wow, he, he really doesn't seem to be um, maintaining the view, the reformed view of regeneration. Mm -hmm. 
He doesn't seem to maintain the reformed view of the perseverance of the saints or um, of just salvation in general, and especially justification. When I got into his work on faith and works, um, that was kind of a deal breaker for me because I saw him explicitly denying uh, what seemed to be the Protestant uh, understanding of justification. So I, I, at that point, I said, okay, clearly Augustine is not our man. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you have to be, it's, it's funny because you have to you have to be really picky and choosy about what you're going to take from Augustine, what you're not. And then it just, it just, it all falls apart. You can, you can make arguments about, well, he believed this at this time and at different phases of his life, you know, mm -hmm. um, but it's still, it's, it's just, it, it really just falls apart. It's illogical. And, um, yeah. I, th I think they do the same thing with St. Paul, right? They, they pick and choose of what they want to believe, how they want to interpret it. It's, um, of course. Of course, though, they would not think that, but yeah. <laughs> I would say so, because I, I find some things in Paul when it comes to justification that I could not reconcile with the um, Reformed understanding. Maybe that was my own inability and limitations, but it just seemed like that wasn't the case, because here you have these other saints throughout history who seem to have the same inabilities then. So <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm in good company, I think. <laughs> yeah. What was, um? did you like really struggle with one aspect or another? Yeah. Of Catholic theology, what 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 what's some of your struggles coming into the church? Sure. Yeah. No, I I did, especially the Marian doctrines. That that was big for me. Um, icons was was a big deal for me for quite a while. Uh, prayers to the saints, um, but then the last one to go was the the Marian issues. So, yeah. those are the ones that I, I really struggle with. So I get it. I understand why uh, whenever you know I'm speaking to a Protestant and they have this impression that uh, idolatry is taking place in Catholicism or in Orthodoxy, uh, by extension, I totally understand because I've been there. But there are a lot of things that I had to work through theologically and in church history to kind of, you know, see otherwise. And there were also just some misunderstandings that I had, especially about Mary, um, that I had to work through. So, yeah. I mean, did you struggle with um, like some of the fallible uh, pronouncements with Mary, like the the, um, the assumption or um, perpetual virginity or anything like that, or was it just maybe terms like copediatrix or what? What in particular, what was it about? The assumption was a big deal, and also uh, terms like copediatrix was a problem for me. The assumption because I did not see it in scripture, although I, I can make a case for it implicitly um, and allegorically in scripture. I didn't see anything explicit there. But then I had to ask myself, well, I can't really see explicitly some other doctrines that I held to as a Protestant. So I can't use that as a standard because it goes back to hit me. So, um, you know, okay. But when I started saying, okay, it, it, it could be implicit, it could be implied here, there is some allegorical approach, but there's also the testimony of the fathers and the, the uh, witness of the magisterium. That helped carry some weight. Um, but also co-mediatrix, it took me a while uh, to really understand that one. And, it, and really, I went ahead and took that one by faith and just said, you know what, I really don't get it. Um, I'm not sure I'm very comfortable with this, but I'm going to go ahead and convert because I had already accepted the understanding of the papacy. So surely this can't be heretical. So whether or not I understand that, I'm just going to have to go out on a limb at this point, right. and hopefully God will just help me as I go, which he did. Right. Uh, but it, it was probably a year into uh, my conver conversion to Catholicism before I was really comfortable with, with that idea. So Yeah, yeah. I, I would say mine was very similar as well, even though mine, mine was, I, once I said, Accepted church authority, mm -hmm. then 
the dominoes just kind of fell. The last yeah, struggle right. for me was the sacrament of the, the Holy Eucharist. Yeah. Um, I thought it was possible. It just didn't seem plausible. Right. I really mm-hmm. didn't understand. You know, I was, I was basically saying that if I was Jesus, would I share myself with all these people in just <laughs> one church? You know, yeah. It, it, yeah. So, yeah, possible, plausible that Jesus would, you know, share yeah. himself in that way with. Yeah. Through the Catholic priesthood, you know, that was. Yeah. But I, I had to continue flushing that one out. I get it. You know, I, I had become pretty comfortable with the idea of the Eucharist for a, a while, even before my conversion, just because I was looking into orthodoxy and, and that the real presence is maintained there. I was also um, looking into Anglo-Catholicism. It's allegedly maintained there. Um, and then, of course, right. Catholicism holds to it. So to me, I thought my all the options agree on this one, so I can't disagree with it. So it's not yeah, a big yeah, yeah. deal. Plus, yeah. I have, you know, the church fathers and stuff like that. So. Yeah. How would, you describe, how would you describe your relationship with Mama Mary now? Yeah, no, very, very good. I, um, I definitely go to Mary first. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that um, a lot of people are very, very big into the rosary. I've prayed the rosary. I've done that a lot, but that's not one of my big <laughs> devotions, although I still do pray it on occasion. Uh, you would think that that would be one of my big devotions. It's actually not. Again, I have no problem with it. I think it's good. I've read the literature on it from the saints. I've practiced it. I still do on occasion. But I'm bigger into like the liturgy of the hours and other prayers like that to the saints, uh, believe it or not. Kind of old school, I guess. <laughs> yeah. How did, the, how did the liturgy come into the church? How did the liturgy affect you? Um, you know, actually positively at first, but then negatively later. And here's why. Because um, at first, I, I really didn't have uh, much of an understanding about the liturgy. So when I first went to um, Mass, it was a Novus Ordo liturgy, but it was actually done very well. It was a very respectable Novus Ordo. So uh, in and of itself, there were no problems with that particular Novus Ordo. Um, so I was, I was impressed. But I started seeing other um, you know, liturgies that were, were questionable, and I had difficulties there. Um, but at, at first, I was actually opposed to, for example, the Latin Mass. Oh. I, I had no idea why would the church have, you know, mass in Latin when none of us speak Latin. Why would the church do this for so long? Why, you know, I actually had a problem with that kind of liturgy, and I was very, very friendly to the Novus Ordo. Uh, but as time went on, I started seeing some benefits to the Latin mass, so I started growing closer to that, and then shying away from the Novus Ordo because of all the liturgical abuses. Mm. And now I kind of have a middle position. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that we needed some of the reforms that came in the post-conciliar era. And I don't think that Vatican II had any major issues with Sancrosanctum Concilium and the reform of the liturgy. It's mostly abuses that we see today that's the problem. And I'm not huge into the Latin Mass either because I think that some things in the Latin Mass, although beautiful and great, some things did need to be reformed. Um, so I'm more kind of a... Uh, a, a balance somewhere between the Novus Ordo and the Latin Mass when it comes to the Western Rite, and when mm. it comes to the Easter Rites, I love the Easter Rites. So. Okay, that's very. <laughs> I'm, an, I'm an I oddball. I never heard someone 
at that place. You know, that, that's it's a very <laughs> odd position. It's a very nuanced position because I'm big in the liturgy. I've studied the history of it. So I'm aware that there are some developments that took place in the Latin Mass yeah. that we take for granted that just were simply, um, you know, things that were just built over time. They were natural. So I get it. The, the, the liturgy, uh, liturgical reforms that took place after the Second Vatican Council were not organic. Right. And that's part of the problem. But some reforms needed to happen to the Tridentine liturgy. So I'm I'm in that middle position. It's a very nuanced position. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. most most people aren't there, so most people don't get me. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like you have your, your perspective a little bit developed here. So talk about a couple of those things, reforms that you think needed to take place. Um, I, I think it was good to restore the chalice to um, the to the laity. Although I understand the reason why they took it away originally with the Eucharist controversy, and also guarding against um, you know spilling the precious blood, which I've witnessed at Novus Ordo Liturgies before, I wow. get it. I understand, but. Um, I think it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater at this point. Maybe that was necessary back then to guard against that problem, but now we don't really have that issue of the Eutrechus controversy. Um, mm. I think, and I, so I think it's more fitting that you give both forms, both species. Uh, it's not essential. You receive Christ fully in in just one kind. Absolutely. So it's not essential, but it's more fitting, just in the same way that it's not essential to receive chrismation or confirmation with baptism immediately. Right. But it is more. Um, so <laughs> it, that that's kind of my approach when it when it comes to this. So that's just one thing uh, when it comes to the um, the Latin. Believe it or not, I love Latin. But I do think that it, it is important to have some vernacular during the liturgy. Um, I, I do think that even the priest um, could, could speak in the vernacular when it pertains to things that are being said to the people. So, for example, mm -hmm. the reading of scripture, that mm -hmm. should be done in vernacular. Um, although some could say this is still a sacrificial act, and so it should still be in Latin. I get it, but it's more fitting that the people understand what's being read. Um, but when you go to most, Nova, uh, I'm sorry, most uh, Tridentine liturgies today, they do translate it for you. They'll read the Latin, and then in the pulpit, usually during the sermon, they'll give you a translation. But that's not something, that that's relatively new. That's yeah. not something that's been there. I haven't seen that yet myself. Yeah. Um, dialogue masses, that's relatively new. This was not something this was something that took place right before the liturgical re reforms. Some of these things were already taking place right before Vatican II. But that's that's relatively new. For the most part, the laity were not participating vocally in the liturgy, whereas in the Eastern liturgies, they still do to this day, and I think that's much more fitting. Yeah. That's just a few examples. Uh, you know, you have another one, uh, and you have an extra reading of Scripture uh, in the Novus Ordo, whereas you only have one reading uh, in the Tridentine Liturgy. Um, I think that's good. The more, the better, because in the very early church, you would just, you know, you would have the, the person reading from Scripture until the bishop said, stop. That's the way they did it. <laughs> yeah. um, so the more, the better. Yeah, yeah, I could go on, but those are just some things that I think that you know needed reform. But what we end up ended up getting was in practice much more than just reform. So that's kind of the yeah, problem. yeah, yeah, yeah. I like yeah, I like your perspective there. That's pretty that's pretty mature. Um, look, one of your one of your um, one of your many 
essays uh, that I that I, I cared for during your, your 2015 year of um, um, prolificity um, was <laughs> was this essay here? Well, is it was over at Church Militant, I believe. Yeah, uh -huh. you were looking into Thomas Aquinas. And you were looking into, I think, baptism in a developed, mm -hmm. in, in the mm -hmm. comment section. I, I'll, I'll try to drop a link to that yeah, in the yeah. for everybody, too. And the comment section is really, mm -hmm. that's where it's really good, good essay. But the comment section was really good. Uh, some good development down there. But speaking of Aquinas, I want to get this because, you know, he's really Western. But he, yeah. and you, you have some, some background yeah. with Eastern liturgy. Yeah. Did you, do you think... That Western Latin Catholics, you think we we place too much emphasis on the precise moment when the Holy Eucharist truly becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ? Do we put too much emphasis on the consecration, the act of um, when it occurs, versus your Eastern Catholics? In their per personally, I would say no. Although I would defer to Father Coppice on this issue. I know he recently wrote a whole book on on this issue, so I, I would defer to to him. But personally, um, you know, I I think that we 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 actually need <laughs> that uh, distinction. We we need to know when. Um, in the same way that we need to know what is a valid baptism or or actually just you know what is a valid eucharist i think the, these distinctions are important yes has the western tradition sometimes uh, made too many distinctions gone too far with it sure but for the most part i think distinctions are good kind of quoting maximus with his dialogue there with uh, pyrus i mean he talks about um ambiguity is mm. is a problem you need nuance you need mm. distinctions so I don't have a problem with it. Um, one of the difficulties I had with ortho orthodoxy is this constant assertion of, oh, you know, it's just the whole liturgy uh, and there's no particular act. That's a problem for me because it seems like quite a few of the fathers actually did isolate uh, that moment of consecration to the words of institution. So mm -hmm. they didn't seem to have that perspective. So that was, you know, somewhat of a difficulty for me. So I don't have a problem with the Western tradition defining things like that. Yeah, maybe yeah. I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes we can get too, you know, too persnickety too into yeah. the, um, the the minutia. But I think we're closer than you know. And I I I tell a lot of people if if I felt more comfortable after the liturgy was over, if after the Byzantine rite was over, there are people you know afterwards that were speaking English, kind of made me feel part of the community. I would have been Byzantine a long time ago. It just doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. I don't feel yeah. like I belong part into the the community afterwards. Yeah. You know, that's just that's. But that's just you know a personal issue. But, sure, sure, sure. But I want to transition a little bit here, because um, I know you have children. You have mm -hmm. you have boys and girls, or mm -hmm. one girl, two boys. Yeah, yeah. and so, um, uh, and I know that um, that. Your children have, I guess, you say mixed heritage. I don't know what we would right. call it, or, uh, mixed race. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, sure. You know, my first, um, my first two, um, my my uh, first son and then my daughter um, were from a previous marriage. You know, long story short, she she ended up deciding to divorce. But we had two children, and um, they're they're seven and nine now. 
but they they are of a mixed heritage. Obviously, I'm white, so they're they're part white, but they're also uh, part Hispanic and part black because their their mother is half black, half Hispanic. Um, <clears throat> so they're they're mixed. And then my um, my two year old um, from my fiance is um, <clears throat> he's half black and half white. Um, she's from Costa Rica, so she's Afro Caribbean. So ethnically, genetically, she's black. But culturally, uh, she she has some hi Hispanic culture there, so she speaks Spanish fluently. Um, her first language is Patois, so it's kind of like what, what they speak in Jamaica, uh, and then Spanish. Um, so, and then English is her third language. So then my other other son um, has those uh, backgrounds as well. He's he's mm. Hispanic. He's black and he's white. <laughs> Though genetically yeah. he's black and white, uh, so yeah. a lot yeah. going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, when, when that's yeah, that's cool. When people yeah. um, when people see your children out in in public, what do they perceive them to be? What do you, what, do, yeah. what do you hear from them? Yeah, I mean, every, everybody always knows that they're mixed. Like if I okay. if I maybe just show a picture of my kids to somebody, um, and they they have no idea about their mother, they they know clearly. Oh yeah, yeah, they're they're mixed. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so, but you know, mo most people are able to perceive that. I guess I you know I've never heard um, somebody say otherwise. At least yeah. if if they thought so. Yeah. <clears throat> Is it um. Is it a, a challenge being a father of um, you know European heritage right. to to raise children who are, are are mixed heritages? Yeah, you know, honestly, no, um, not not in so far as. I've experienced, I'm sure others have, have different experiences, but from what I've experienced, no, but you would think otherwise, because I live in Louisiana, I'm in the South, uh, so you would think there would be a lot of uh, racial problems, but actually never had any issues. Now, I've had a few people talk behind my back about it, but, you know, no actual real issues, um, never really had any problems at school uh, with, with the children, you know, with, with uh, any comments being made there, so... Not yet. I haven't really experienced anything, but um, I guess I don't know differently either because I only have mixed children. So <laughs> I don't know. What, I don't know what it would be like to compare it, you know, differently. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I was listening to you know this whole thing that's been going on. We'll touch on that with the police brutality issues mm -hmm. and. Um, yeah, that's a whole topic in, in itself, but some black parents feel as if though, um, and I personally, I've, I, you know, I have all daughters, and I, yeah. I even in the young men I mentored, I've, you know, I never felt compelled to have this conversation, but some some black Americans feel like they have to have this conversation with black boys mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. about the police mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Um, when if they pull you over, be respectful right. in, right. in this whole thing. Do you ever feel like you have to have those conversations with a police because a police officer may perceive your 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 child to <laughs> or something like that? Not not yet, just because they're they're still pretty young. I mean, my my oldest son is seven, and then my other one is two, so we haven't had to encounter that yet. But I imagine there there will have to be some kind of conversation, but. Um, 
you know, for the most part, just w coming from um, experiences with the white community, I haven't had a whole lot of problems with them racially profiling, um, you know, my, my children or anything. So hopefully I won't have to have that conversation, but uh, I guess I'll find out in a few years. Yeah. Well, yeah. As, as I mean, as a, as a white guy, what do you say to people who, because I know from, from your spirits, we have, we have that in common. Yeah. I think the abortion experience for me, once yeah. I became Catholic, that, that really set me on fire to be right. um, be pro-life. But what do yeah. you, but the, the abortion issue in the United States, this disproportionately affects black Americans. Right. Um, sure. Although we only represent about 13% of the population, we abort mm -hmm. our children at about the same rate as white Americans, even more so right. in some cities like New York City, maybe Atlanta. More children right. are aborted than children are born. You're passionate about the life issue. But how yeah. do you... Yeah. Somebody said something to you. I mean, you, you want to talk about this as, as, a, as a Christian, as a man, yeah. as a human yeah. being. You see that yeah. abortion kills human beings. Human beings yeah. shouldn't kill human beings like that. Children in the womb, they're, they're the voiceless. They're the, they're the innocent. They're the defenseless. The yeah. womb should be a place of protection. But you, as a man, you see that, yes, abortion is evil. It is, it is evil in the world. But and then you look at black Americans, you see, wow. For them, mm -hmm. it's even it's defensively a genocide. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in America, but as as a, as a white guy, how do you? When people say to you, "Well, why you know why you're a white guy? Why do you care about? Why should you care about? How can you speak about black issues? What do you?" Say? Yeah, that that's honestly something that that I that I encounter. Um, <laughs> what I say is, I care about human life. I have every right to speak about a genocide that's taking place regardless of the color of the community because we're talking about human beings. Now, obviously, I care about abortion taking place with all communities, uh, whether, whether it's white, Asian, or, or whatever. But it, it, it is disproportionate, as you say, in the black community. So I am going to say something about it. And I really don't care that people say, well, you're white. You can't say that. You know, let, let us deal that within our own community. Because my thing is, OK, look, if you're if you're on, you know, you have a you're, you're black and you're on the side of the road and you have a heart attack and white EMTs come to you to save you, you're not going to send them away and say, no, send me black EMTs. Only black people can save a community. You're not going to say something like that. So why can't I help try to save uh this community in whatever small way that I can save lives in this community, just because I'm white, um, I should still be able to speak out for human life, regardless of my race, because we are all made in the image of God. So I have every right to speak out against injustice, um, just as the next guy. You know, I saw a video a while back. There was a little, uh, I don't know, she was maybe 10 or 11 white girl. It was at city court or something. I forget what city it was, maybe Seattle. And she was at court. And she was giving a speech about how bad abortion is. And she was comparing it to slavery. And she was saying, nobody here accepts, you know, a, a white slave master beating on a, a, a black slave. But they're all okay with black babies being aborted. And then when she said that, there was an uproar. And it was mostly from black women. Oh. No right. We will deal with our own community. You're white. You can't say anything. And I think that white girl had every right to speak against the evil that's taking place um, in the black community towards black babies. 
she had every right to do that, not because she's their color, because she isn't, but because she's a human being. Mm. And humans are yeah. able to speak against injustice wherever it is. So that, that's kind of my thing. Even though people will give me pushback on it, I, I'm still going to say what it is. I'm still going to speak the truth. And just it's really, and it's, and, and, it's, and it's something to behold. I mean, the sheer hypocrisy, I think, for people to want to utter that as, as black mm -hmm. Americans, because if we look back, we look back at during, during um, slavery, uh, we could keep yeah. going on with that. It was people yeah. in, in, in the Senate and the Congress, people like Charles Sumner and Thaddeus Stevens, white, white abolitionists, um, Abraham Lincoln. It was it's, for slavery, it was white people standing in the gap saying mm -hmm. enough is enough. Right. Yeah. And that, yeah. that really helped um, in, in slavery. As black Americans, we have very few legal rights. We couldn't enslave ourselves. We needed white Americans right. to do that. And so thank sure. God you had white Americans speaking out against that evil. But how yeah. dare they speak out about abortion? Now, how <laughs> dare they be the ones standing in front of um, the, the abortion slaughterhouses? And if you've you ever been outside of one, you don't see too many black Americans, even though most people that's going inside in a lot of yeah. cities are black Americans. You go to the March right. on Life, you mainly see white Americans. That are they're standing in the gap against um, you know something that affects all people, but disproportionately black Americans. So it's it's, it's and you, then you hear these silly arguments. What is what's the most silly argument here? Oh, white people only care about um, abortion because um, it's not about black people. They don't want their children to be aborted or something like that. It's just it's just sophistic on on every uh, just on the <laughs> you know. Maybe there's some white guy out there who, who only cares about it because it's going to affect him and his family. Maybe there is, but I, I don't think most white people, that's their angle. You know, I think that most white people, when they speak against abortion, it's because they hate um, innocent babies being slaughtered regardless of the color. You know, yeah. and, and people should be able to speak about that regardless of uh, what ethnicity they're from, because it's an injustice. I mean, the alternative is to just turn a blind eye and just say, who cares? Who cares about these black babies? What, what am I supposed to say that I don't care about them? Or am I supposed to say, no, I care about them. They're human beings. Let me speak <laughs> against this evil. What's the alternative to just be silent and be complicit in it? Yeah. Yeah. So many silly arguments, right? Uh, you, can't speak, you, can, yeah, you can't speak about abortion uh, because um, have you adopted any children? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how many children have you adopted? I mean, mm -hmm. the, these things, right? These silly arguments. You know, that that's actually something that I like to talk a lot about because here we fund Planned Parenthood. We give all this money to them, and yet we give very little to um, adoption agencies, and it's extremely expensive to adopt a child, and yet it's practically free for some people to be able to get an abortion. So we, we definitely have some problems here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never really thought about that. You know, it's, it's, you know so, some some uh, adoption agencies, you might pay $10,000 uh, to ad adopt a child. That's another thing. Um, I, I actually um, ha have had discussions on, okay, uh, I would like to adopt a child. Well, believe it or not, um, it's kind of hard to adopt a white child. And the reason it's a lot easier to ad adopt a black child. One of the reasons why is, and I think this is a problem with the white community, is when white people go to adopt, um, they don't want to be 
it's easier for them to adopt a white child just because it's it's easier for them uh, socially. So there ends up being a disproportionate amount of black children who are not adopted. Um, so for me, if I go to adopt, it, it will probably be a black child to just try to help offset that, that yeah. problem. But I guarantee if I were to do so, I mean, there, there would be people who would say stuff. But now, of course, my fiance, she, she has uh, so, some, um, you know, children of her own and they're fully black. You might see me at Walmart with, you know, uh, several, you know, fully black children and then several mixed children. And so yeah. I, you might already see that anyway. And, <laughs> you know, I imagine some people are saying things behind my back, but yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if they'll say things behind your back, but I, just as a human, sometimes if, if, even if it's any type of race, if I see something that looks, you know, incongruent, it's like, oh, that's, hmm, that's interesting. I, and I think about it for a second, like, huh? <laughs> I, I, I'll give you an example. Like, I, I went to the counter at, uh, I guess I was at Walmart to get, I don't know, some fries and, and chicken that they serve over there. Mm-hmm. You know, the fried food, the hot food yeah. that they have. And, and then um, my fiance's daughter, she was getting something. Um, and I was standing next to her and I could tell the lady who was giving it to her, you know, she was very friendly to her. But she looked at me weird, like, why are you standing next to this black girl? And then she realized that she's with me. She's part of my family. Oh. And, and she felt really embarrassed. So sometimes <laughs> I get stereotyped like that. Oh, man, that's something. Yeah. What do you <laughs> no. think? What do you think? Because I know you thought about this subject a whole lot. I mean, what, what are some top reasons why you think that abortion disproportionately um, affects black Americans? What are, what are um, some of the things there's there's a lot of factors um i think one of the biggest reasons is the the democratic party has really evangelized itself among the black community um and one of its biggest you know uh, angles in that platform is abortion um i think that's one of the reasons um i think i'm sure fatherlessness has impacted the community to where black women feel like they they need it would be easier to abort because you know there's not a father home. I'm sure those are really really big factors. Of course, you also have Margaret Sanger uh, promoting it um, to the black community, although behind their back, then going on and telling uh, people that this is there to exterminate the black community. So yeah. I, I'm sure there's multiple factors. That's that's at least the impression that I, I've had. But hey, if there's others, uh, I'm willing to be uh, corrected. Yeah. It definitely was a, a, um, a systematic agenda. I mm-hmm. mean, that's, I think it's always been in place with the Democratic Party. I mean, targeting Black Americans, yeah, um, for for you know for hundreds of years. It, it just happened to be that you know the Democratic Party they went from um, uh, a plantation system of, of physical corporal um, agenda to more like a psychological agenda. I mean, we went from physical slavery to economic slavery. We've mm-hmm. went from um, the Democratic Party starting the KKK to lynch blacks to supporting mm-hmm. the Planned Parenthood who's lynching babies in the womb. And so there's just this transition of, of there's just demonic activity yeah. against all human beings. Um, yeah. But, you know, um, for whatever reason, it just has um, um, been an agenda against black Americans in particular. So, and and it's something that 
you know, it's very taboo to speak out against, yeah. especially if you're if you're not black. It's very taboo to speak out against that evil. You know, yeah. a, a lot of people would just marginalize you on the spot if if you're not black and you speak about this evil in the black community. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's really that's really too bad. Yeah. Too bad. So um, so as a representative of the um, the Black American Committee. I, I hereby um, give Michael Lofton here permission <laughs> on black issues um, where he chooses to, because he's speaking as a human being, as a Christian about these issues. So um, now I'll definitely submit that motion at the next conference. So. Right. right. <laughs> but, you, you know, know I've, I've, yeah, go, go ahead. Uh, but I'm just saying, I'm, I'm really actually not invited because, you know, because I'm, I'm a conservative I'm, and I'm Catholic. I'm not actually black myself. Even according to Joe Biden, I'm not black because I'm not going to vote for him. So, um. And so that's the thing. And that, that's something that I've noticed a lot as well, is blacks are marginalized in the black community when they begin to speak about these things. They're called Oreos and all kinds yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've seen both sides of um, obviously spent a lot of time around the black community and also around the white community. I've seen trends in both. Uh, but that's one that I've noticed that anytime you have a black male or a female speak ab against some of these things, they're immediately called racial slurs. Yeah. 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 Man, Mike, I gotta have you back on, man. We're just barely touching on a lot of these things, man, but there's um, a lot. Yeah. 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 We gotta get together again. What, um, so people can, Pretty much, Rick, how can they, they find you online yeah. other than Google stalking you like me? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm on Facebook, so just uh, type in Michael Lofton. Um, so I'm on there. Uh, Google the, the e uh, Gmail is reasonandtheology at gmail.com. Uh, so you can contact me there or go to reasonandtheology.com and go to the contact us page and, and that'll get yeah. to me. So any of the above. <laughs> All right. And um, we're at the end of the show. So as people who watch this podcast know, this is where I like to ask my guest five questions, five questions, five answers. So we're going to see if we can uh, find out more about you. All I'll right? do my best. All right. So <laughs> <laughs> what was the last thing you cooked on the grill? I actually grilled uh, two days ago. I made ribs. Um, I made ribs. Steak and ribs and and some boudin. I don't know if uh, oh, some of the viewers know. That's oh, yeah, but was it, was it red yeah. or was it? I know because I, you know, I spent no, some time down there. Was, yeah, yeah, no, it was more kind of the light brown boudin. Oh, okay, you know, it has has all kinds of stuff stuffed in it, but no, it's yeah. I like boudin, but no, I, I made mostly um, ribs and steak and just a couple of those on the side. You smoke them or <laughs> just straight, just straight grill fire. Straight grill, yeah. No, I, I don't have a smoker, so I just put <laughs> them on the grill. <laughs> yeah, that was two good. nights ago. I'm still I'm still eating grilled grilled ribs. <laughs> From that, yeah. <laughs> All right, number two. What is your favorite YouTube channel? You get you know you get on your computer, you go to YouTube. Where's what channel do you kind of like check first in the morning or whatever? You're you're gonna laugh uh, probably, but actually James White's Alpha and Omega Ministries, which is a Protestant one, um, so I, it's not necessarily recommended because uh, <laughs> he's he's actually pretty anti-Catholic in some yeah, right. ways. But I find him really entertaining on other areas like textual criticism and other apologetic issues. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of problems surrounding James White when it comes to so I'm not necessarily recommending him, but I find him the most interesting. When 
when it comes to certain topics. So believe it or not, James White's. Wow, I did not expect. <laughs> I'll to probably hear get this. shot for saying that. <laughs> I did not expect to hear that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, number three, who is the dead person that you would love to debate? I mean, they, they, they're able to come back from the dead just for this one debate with you. Who do you bring back? Yeah, probably Martin Luther. Wow, uh, you go head-to-head with the Luther, huh? I like, um, <laughs> you know, I studied his, his debate at Leipzig with, yeah. um, with John Eck, and yeah. I, I think that, you know, there, there was a lot of problems there. Um, and so that, that would be interesting if I could uh, debate him. But, you know, yeah, yeah that ain't going to happen. <laughs> but probably yeah. Martin Luther. If you could nail him down and make make him less shifty, that would be awesome. Yeah, no, I'd go straight for what Eck did, and that that is the canon. I would go for the canon uh, and and justification, but especially I would just go immediately to the canon and then solo scriptura and then maybe justification. Because <laughs> I, I I don't think that he he would. I don't from what I've seen from Luther, I don't think he had anything reasonable to offer when it comes to the canon of scripture, and I think that is a death blow for him. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, okay. So I don't know how you're going to answer this question because this first person, he spent some time down there in, um, Louisiana. All right. Mm. So who do you pick? You're starting a basketball team. Both of these men are in their prime. Yeah. Who do you take? Do you take Shaquille O'Neal or do you take Tim Duncan? Shaquille. Yeah. I, mean, I think, I think, by stats, wouldn't isn't he just better off overall, just by stats, than Tim Duncan? Tim, I mean, yes, Tim has more rings and he has more durability. Yeah, but uh, I mean, just overall, all things considered, doesn't you know Shaquille have more <laughs> to offer? I mean, at the end of the day, yeah. I haven't checked the stats, but I would think Shaquille, you know, I would, think would so. win. That so yeah. I, I would definitely take Shaq. Okay, okay. <laughs> and the fifth question. You have three options for a superpower. Mm. I want to know which one you would take and why. The first option is invisibility. Second one is flight. The third one is immortality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't want the last one. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm joking. Let let me rephrase that. I I wouldn't want that um, with a corrupt, with a fallen body. Let me put it that way. Um, Uh With an, you know, with a glorified body, I wouldn't have a problem with it. But with a fallen, uh, you know, post-lapsarian body, I don't know if I would want an. See, ladies and gentlemen who are watching this show. This man, Michael Lofton, denies that he's a theologian. Did you hear the way he answered that question? No one can answer the question that way but a theologian. But okay. I, I, I would say flight. Just because I, I love, anytime I've been on the airplane, I love seeing how everything is above ground. I wish I could. Uh, sometimes I have dreams about it, you know, that I actually have the power of flight. So I would probably go with that one over invisibility. Wow, wow. Wow. There would be too many bad things that we could do with invisibility, so that yeah. one needs scratched out as well. We need to go with the power of light. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not not to be a hack psychologist, but I have a lot of experience with this. If a person is dreaming about flying, there's something in your life that you want to be free from. Yeah, we'll yeah. talk about that in the next yeah. show. Sure, well, sure. I'm gonna Let's do you, it. I'm going to put you on my couch. And we're gonna Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> you Sigmund Freud me. That would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Lawton, thanks for coming on Talking Catholic, man. 
Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me on. Fool me, we can't get fooled again.